the most legible one I could find. It's not very good, but I'll have to. I can explain it. Uh, on the left we have the Old Testament. On the right we have the New Testament. And unless you know what these words say, you can't read it. But the first five books are are the books of the law, otherwise known as the Pentateuch. Who wrote them? Moses. Right. So there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We finished those. <coughs> Now we're in a section called history. And I, did, I didn't look it up, but I think we're going to be in this section till this summer. Um, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All those are history. Then we'll be into the, the prophets for the rest of the Old Testament. And I'm not going to talk about the New Testament yet. So I just wanted to to show we finished the first major division in the Bible with with the law. Now, there was plenty of, of history in the law. Uh, Book of Genesis was pretty much all history, and a lot in the in Exodus, probably none of Leviticus, quite a bit in Numbers, a little bit of history in Deuteronomy, but there was still plenty of law there, and the whole thing's called law. Now, this section is is all history. Uh, there's no, there are no laws at all here. In fact, there's no laws for the rest of the Old Testament. All the laws are finished by the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Any questions on that chart? Okay. Then we will switch. What? Oh yeah, don't tell them about that. We haven't got there yet. Yeah, it's a surprise for people. Those people, I handed out the pictures in advance. So, Tracy, better if you if you cheat now, you're not going to get them next time. <laughs> okay, we got a, a fairly simple outline for Joshua. It's a simple book, very straightforward. Um, well, last time we covered the preparation for the possession of Canaan. And then we're in the section of the conquest. We're going to finish that section this morning and we'll get into the section called the division of the land by tribes. So we started the conquest. What was the first city that they conquered? Jericho. Jericho, that's right. And uh, how did they conquer it? Sonic weapons. Talked about another city. One yeah. for six days and then seven on the seventh. That's right. And then and then God brought the walls down. Now, I should have a... Um, yeah, sure. <coughs> this has... So this, this is where how it's going to be divided up uh, by the end of today's lesson. Uh, but this also gives us enough information we can look at the route. They, when Moses was still alive, they were camped over here. Uh, Abel uh, Shittim was is it, it means camp of the acacia trees. 
Um, and then Moses, of course, went over Mount Nebo, where he died. Um, they crossed the Jordan with, with the miraculous stopping of the water. And just across the Jordan, they camped at a place called Gilgal. It, it was not a town or anything. They named it that because that's where they camped. Um, and it was only a very short distance from Jericho. So each morning they get up from their camp, they go march to, Jordan, to Jericho, go around, come back home. Um, after Jericho, what was the next town they decided they would conquer? Ai. Ai, and you can see that's always farther in. Uh, and they ran into a problem. What was the problem they ran into with Ai? Senator, a curse of things we had. Yeah, they didn't know why, but they got beaten. Uh, how many guys got killed in the siege of when they first attacked Jer Ai? Yeah, 30, 36 people died. And none of those guys had sinned. Um, the guy that sinned was still alive. And what was his name? Achan, yeah. And, um, but they learned through that that they're all part of one big congregation. And that that congregation has to be holy to God. And if somebody in the congregation... Um, does something as bad as to take one of the banned objects, uh, an object that is devoted to God, then the whole congregation becomes guilty. And they had to deal with that. Once they dealt with that, then in chapter 8, it was time for them to conquer the, the city. And this time, God had the whole, uh, the whole army go and do it. I, I assume because the... Um, it was. It was. It, I don't think it was because they needed so many people. Uh, I think it, it had more to do with the um, the fact that the nation had been out of favor with God, and so now together as a as a group they would make this attack, and and, and God would demonstrate that they are back, that He is favoring them again. <clears throat> Now they, they came up with a little... God gave them a special strategy for this attack. And what was the strategy? It was a fake out. Yeah, it was a fake out. They, they had lost the first time, so it wouldn't be hard to fake losing the second time. And that would um, draw all the soldiers out of AI. In fact, I think it drew more than that. I think even... Even they, they even got some who come out of Bethel. Meanwhile, what the people of Ai didn't know is that there was a, a special group of 3,000 or I guess 5,000 that had snuck around the other side of the city in the dark. And so when, you know, when they woke up in the morning, they saw the army in front of them. They didn't know there was a hidden army behind them. So, but, so after they all got drawn away from the city... What did that group of 5,000 do? And then with the sword, killed whoever was there. And they burned the city as a yeah. signal. Yeah, they burned the city, which then um, was a signal to the rest of the Israelite army to do what? Turn around. Yeah, turn around. And suddenly the people of Ai were terrified because there was nowhere they could go. Their city was on fire. The enemy was attacking them. And they were, and they were completely wiped out. The city was 
was burned to the ground and they were wiped out. So um, that that demonstrated that they were once again in God's favor, that he, he was going to give them the victory. And from then to the rest of the book, uh, that's the way it, it, it continues. Now, in, uh, in chapter 9, we have a very interesting story. Uh, on the map here, here is the city of Gibeon. But the people in their, uh, uh, in their camp... Now, you know, I missed a, I skipped a story. We need to talk about this. At the end of chapter 8, they did something Moses had told them to do. Of course, Moses is dead by now, but what had Moses told them to do? Yes, stand on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And they would repeat the blessings and the curses. They would also build an altar there. They also wrote the law on stones. Uh, all of this, and Mount Ebal and Gerizim are... Uh, oh, and they're in somewhere in the neighborhood here. I don't, they're not on this map, but they're in, around in this neighborhood in the middle of the, of the land. Are they supposed to do that each time they win a battle? No. No, this is just a one-time thing. Yeah, um, it, it was a ceremony marking the fact that God had given them the land. That's what it was. Uh, you may recall back when God called Abraham to go into this land, when he came into the land, he built an altar. And that was again in, in recognition that God was giving him the land. When, when Jacob had to leave the land... He promised God that if God would keep him safe and bring him back, He would give him a tithe at Bethel. And so when he came back in, he, he took his whole family to Bethel and they worshiped God there. Each time it, it, it is in recognition that God is the one that has brought us here. And that's what they were doing on Mount Ebal and Gerizim. They were, they were worshiping God and proclaiming the fact that God had given them the land. Now they still have more, to, more fighting to do, but... Um, they got to the point where they could do what Moses had told them to do. But now we have a slight interruption here, and it's an unfortunate story. These people of Gibeon, actually, it wasn't unfortunate for them. <laughs> um, at the beginning of the chapter, we find that um, most of the kings beyond the Jordan were galvanized into action at this point. In verse 2, they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Um, I don't recall whether I talked about this last time, but Canaan was not under a single ruler. Each city had its own king, which more or less means he was more like a mayor than a king, and he's just over one city. But of course, the kings in those days were the ones that led their people into battle, so most mayors don't, don't do that. Um, so, when they have a big enemy like this, uh, they've got to they've come up with some kind of a confederation. And what we find in, chap, in chapter 10, this chapter 10 is kind of the result of this, of what we find in chapter 9, verse 2, this was a confederation of the southern kings. Uh, I can't remember all the names, but there was the king of Jerusalem, uh, the king of Hebron, um, some over here, I forget which ones, I don't know if Gezer was there. Uh, but a number of kings teamed up 
and it was it was all in the southern part of of the land. Um, now I will just mention that that's probably not the best way to form an army to have a bunch of independent kings that all join their forces. Uh, you'd do better to have a unified national, you know, a national army. But there was no nation of Canaan at the time. It wouldn't have mattered anyway if God was with Israel. <laughs> that's right. And then they were going to fight. Yeah, that's right. Anyway. That's exactly right. Um, but we'll find later on that, that Israel doesn't like being uh, Israel doesn't like being like this, where they don't have a, a unified king. But that's going to be several books away. Meanwhile, the Gibeonites, they understand one thing really well, and that is that these people who are conquering the land are winning every battle, and they're not leaving anybody alive. They understand that. And they somehow they have figured out also that um, they're not going to make any peace treaty with anybody in the land. I'm not sure how they knew that, but they did know that. And so they use deceit and trickery to uh, to get what they couldn't have gotten if they had been straightforward. Now you have to admit they're showing some faith in this, <laughs> um, but I, I don't think their faith is to the point where they're willing to repent of of their idolatry, that which was why God was having these people be wiped out. <coughs> Yeah, they did make a mistake, didn't they? Because um, these people showed up and said, well, we're from a far country. Well, in the Law of Moses, were they allowed to make trees with people from far countries? Yes. They were, yeah. Were they allowed to make treaties with people in the land? No. They were not. They had to wipe them out. That, that, was, that was their job. They were, they were the punishment of God on, on these idolatrous peoples. Why would they... Well, because God hadn't um, God hadn't given the, them that the land of the people that were far away, and 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 God was not punishing those people that were far away for their for their idolatry. What was the purpose, though, of making a treaty with them? Trade goods, Yeah, I mean, you don't you know you promise not to attack me, I promise not to attack you. You know, you both benefit by that. I mean, just like I mean, we have a treaty with Canada like that. What's the benefit? We don't have to. Call the treaty, I guess. What? I just never heard of the United States calling it a treaty. Oh, yeah. No, we have we have treaties with a number of countries, and part partly it also includes an agreement for mutual support. If somebody attacks our treaty partner, then we'll go and defend them. If someone attacks us, then they'll come and defend us, and that was. That, that appears to be part of what this treaty with Gibeon included. So how did they convince Joshua and the elders of Israel that they really were from a long distance away? Dress down Friday. <laughs> yeah, they, they took all this old food and, and wineskins that were old and patched and, and clothes are all worn out and they said, you know, when we left home, this bread came fresh out of the oven and are these wineskins were brand new, our clothes were in good shape, and, and you know, we, we just it's just been a long way. They did something else that you may not have noticed, um, that that I think was pretty clever. Notice in verse nine, 
Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God, and we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. Now that had been, of course, 40 years earlier. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Well, that's all true. What did they leave out? What you did to our immediate neighbors. Jericho and Ai, yeah. Why didn't they mention those two? They could have just Right. They knew perfectly well what had happened to Jericho and Ai, but they had to pretend like they'd only heard this news that takes a long time to get there. And so, I mean, the whole thing, it was well done. You have to admit, it was a well done plan. Um, but what could Joshua have done to have avoided the problem? Had the priest consult God. Yeah, consult God. That's what he could have done. And they didn't. Instead, they just... Um, in fact, they, they were a little bit suspicious. Uh, you notice how they, they said... Um, let me see here. Verse 14. Um, oh yeah, verse seven. Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? So you know they they recognized the possibility. They were suspicious, but finally they just ended up taking some of the food and just accepting the fact that you know these guys are who they say they are, and they made a covenant. Then how long did it take before they found out they had been duped? Three days. Yeah, three days. Uh, those guys were lucky. I mean, they were they were playing awfully close. <laughs> if they'd just been three days later, um, and the congregation was not happy about this. But what does the leader say? This is in verse uh, nineteen. They sworn to in the name of the Lord. Yeah. So we cannot go back on it. Now, this is a principle that today we need to keep this in mind. Um, there are times when we make promises and then afterwards we think, uh, I don't think I understood all that I was promising. And that was certainly the case here. These people didn't understand all they were promising. But does that mean we can get out of our promise? It does not. Um, the only thing I can think of where you get out of your promise is if you found that you'd promised to sin, and obviously, you know, you can't keep a promise to sin. But this was not a promise to sin. Um, although it was, a, unfortunately, it was a sin, they weren't going to wipe them out. But. Um, uh, by what? Oh yes, sure. Yeah, it, you know, you promise you promise to pay him a hundred a hundred dollars, then you get in financial trouble. He says, "Well, just forget it." You know, that's no problem. Obviously, you're you're released at that point. I'm talking about promises where where you either you're not released or you can't be released. I mean, the Gibeonites certainly weren't going to release Joshua from his promise. Um, and there are other promises we get into before God that. Um, God's not going to release us even though we may want to be released. 
Yeah. So they ended up making them slaves. Hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation. And they, they later on they would work at the tabernacle taking you know, doing service there. Um, but um, they never did wipe out the Gibeonites. In fact, this is going to come up later on in the days of Saul and, and in, even in David's time. And, and the people, the Israelites, are going to be punished by God because Saul was actually killing some of the Gibeonites. So God even shows His attitude about keeping promises even when you went into it not understanding the whole story. Well, okay, then chapter 10, these, uh, these kings um, that had already gotten together in chapter 9, they realized that they're in even more trouble because now the Gibeonites are allied with the Israelites. And Gibeon was a, was a major city. So they decided to knock off Gibeon first. <laughs> and I guess they'll worry about Israel after that. And so the Gibeonites had to send quick word to Joshua to you know keep your promise. We're in trouble, you know. Um, and they said, "Do not abandon your servants." See, Joshua made them their slaves. <laughs> said, "Don't abandon your slaves." And so this begins the southern campaign in the book of Joshua, which only lasts one chapter, but it, it, it probably lasted quite a few months. Now, what, what, we have, what we have in the first part of, of the chapter only took one day. Um, they started by marching all night from Gilgal. So, uh, and at this point, they're at a different Gilgal. I, they're not going to stay at that Gilgal. There's another one up here. Um, and it's, um, it's much nearer to where, the, where they uh, had the ceremony at Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. It's also in, in, a, in a location more convenient for the fighting they're going to have to do. So from Gilgal, they marched all night to Gibeon. I don't know how many miles it is, but uh, it looks on the map like you could do it in a night. And they, of course, then they surprised those kings and they, they uh, slew them. And in the battle, God helped. What did God do in the battle? Extended hours of daylight. Now, there's, there's more than one answer. I'm not looking for John's answer. What was your answer, Ralph? Okay, that no, I'm, I I got to have another answer. Yeah, Eric. Uh, and now everyone's answering the same thing. I want a different thing. Hailstones. Yeah, I got to get hailstones. Um, in verse eleven, he threw large stones from heaven on them, and says there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So, God is making it very clear that He is fighting the battle for these people. Um, then, now everyone else can have their answer here. At this point, Joshua realizes that he's running out of, of day before he's running out of battle. And once night falls, they can't fight. And all these guys are going to get back to their cities and, and he'll lose uh, what could have been a, a much greater victory. So he asks for the sun to, and the moon to stop. And... The author of the book of Joshua, we don't know who he, the author is, but he quotes from the book of Jasher, which apparently is a book of, of we don't have it, it's, it's long been lost, but probably a book of um, uh, poetry 
commemorating some of the things that God had done for the people. He quotes from that that book. And um, he said there was no day before it or after it, which I can certainly believe that. <laughs> um, when, the, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, and he, so he extended the day. And of course, I'm thinking these poor guys, they marched all night. <laughs> They've been fighting all day. And now Joshua says, hey, let's have an extra long day. <laughs> yeah, just because God does all these things doesn't mean that we don't have things to do too. <laughs> we might get tired. But they, um, I'm sure they were running on adrenaline at this point. This was an exciting time for these people. God was giving them these great victories. The five kings hid where? In a cave. In a cave, yeah. And Joshua didn't allow, he didn't let, let that divert him. You know, roll the stones in front of the cave, we'll take care of them later. And they chased ever they could. Anyone they could track down before they got back to their, their walled city. Uh, they would kill, and they and they made a great slaughter. And then, um, then they went back at the end and and uh, executed the five kings. Then, in verse twenty nine, and to the end of the chapter, um, this is a long process. Uh, I'm sure it, I would assume it took weeks to to do this southern campaign. In fact, the overall the conquering the entire land, north and south, in between, all that. Um, probably was a, a period of about seven years. And I'll show you why in a, in a little while. Um, but um, So you have these one-day things, and, and that gets them going, but now they've got to go and attack each of these cities individually. And that's what they do from verse 29 through the end of the chapter. Um, and he... He mentions the names of these different ones and how they captured it and put everyone to the sword and all that. I won't go into the details, but that's what that's what we call the Southern Campaign. In some of your Bibles, you may even have a map of of the conquests of Joshua, and it'll have arrows how he conquered in the south and in the north. But I don't have it on an overhead. Then in chapter eleven, we have another campaign. And what's this one? Yeah, does anyone know where Hazor is in the land? Hazor is way up here in the in the north. So this is now the northern campaign. And they again they got a bunch of different kings together uh, who were all in the north. Um, and they had something that um, I don't think Joshua has had to face up until now, some military thing. Yeah, they had horses and chariots. Yeah, first time they faced that. Um, and of course, if Joshua could capture these horses and chariots, then he'd have horses and chariots, which that didn't seem like a good idea. But not to God, it doesn't. Does. What did God say to do with the horses? Lay them there. Hamstring them. Yeah, so they would not be able to pull anything after that. So and burn the chariots. So seemed like a good idea, but that's not God's way. God is going to have them fight in God's strength, not in their own strength. Yeah. yeah. Listen, Hazor, not at this period, but later on, a Philistine city. No, it was, the Philistines were in this area down here. Hazor was one of the cities. No, no, no. No, no, no Hazor's way up there. Hazor does appear in the book of Judges. Sisera 
uh, was from that area. I don't know if it was specifically Hazel, but but uh, yeah, that that area is going to come again because um, you know these people they they beat them down, but they keep coming back. Um, so they went around and they. Um, once they, they conquered the big army, then they, then they went and conquered each of the cities individually, just like they'd done in the south. And again, it must have taken some time to go through and mop all that up. Um, in verse 18 of chapter 11, Joshua waged a war a long time with all these kings. Um, and, and that, I think, is kind of a summary of the whole, the whole thing. North and south, it took a long time. And chapter 12 then gives us a summary this is this is a boring chapter, I guess. That's, I don't know any other way to put it. <laughs> Just names. Well, he reviews everything. You know, all going all the way back into the book of Deuteronomy with Sihon uh, and Og, um, and then he reviews all the kings they've killed um, and conquered throughout the land, and, and that that goes through the end of chapter twelve. That then finishes this part of the book of Joshua. The next section, starting in chapter 13, is the division of the land to the tribes. And this, this uh, map works well for that because the, the tribes are now colored in uh, f- according to their, their boundaries. Ken, before you leave chapter 12, in verse 10 all the way to 24, yes. it says the king of Aegon warned him that it does not accept how many kings they killed. Uh, Yes, um, I'm a little bit puzzled because some of those kings, I think they killed two kings for the same city. Um, they See, that that day when, the, the extra long day when they killed the five kings, um, they later on went back and besieged the cities that those kings were from and they killed another king because, of course, you know, when one king dies, you do another one. Um, so I'm not quite sure why they say one when... In some cases, I think it was two. Uh, but it may just be more like one city with its king and everything to go with it. You know, just kind of... Um, if you're going to add up how many cities they took, you add up all the ones. <laughs> this is an Excel spreadsheet here. Yeah. Early form of Excel spreadsheet. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, there you go. You, you know, and Excel has a very easy way to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly. There's no record of Israelites being killed or dying. Would we assume that that just happened? I mean, in war, that just happened. They just, they just still won, or do we? Would we kind of assume, oh, they had God on their side, not a single one. Died. Yeah. Well, you're asking a good question. Um, you're asking a good question. Uh, uh, we, we do know the 36, of course, had died when they attacked AI. And that was, of course, just a big tragedy. Um, my guess, and it's only a guess, my guess is that some Israelites did die in the process. The reason I think so is that, uh, for well, for a couple of things. One is, when Israel attacked the Midianites, they were just really excited the fact that not a single one of Israelites had been killed, and they offered a special offering to God for that. They recognized it was pretty special. And secondly, the, the commandments in Deuteronomy, when, when you get called out to war, if you, if you just marry, you don't have to fight because you might get killed 
and then you know you you don't have any children. So the the normal assumption was if you're going into a battle, some people are going to die. And, and so that would be my guess. But there's nothing in the book of Joshua either way on that. It doesn't say nobody died. It doesn't say some people died. So it is an interesting question. Um, and it's one that won't come up again because after this, it's pretty obvious Israelites die. <laughs> in the book of Judges, oh my. you know. Um, so now, it says in, in chapter 13, verse 1, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. And this I find this a little bit amusing because Joshua was old and advanced in years when he crossed the Jordan. <laughs> he, he was 80. And my guess is he's not more than 87 at this, at this time. And the reason I say that is that in chapter 15, No, chapter 14. In chapter 14, verse 6, Caleb came and asked for his own special possession. And he gives some dates here. He says in verse 7, I was 40 years old when Moses sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And then in verse 10, he says, you know, the Lord has let me live these 45 years. 45 years. Hmm, how long do they wander in the wilderness? Well, but wait a minute. Over a year of that was spent before the Kadesh Barnea thing. So we're really looking at 38 years from the time he went to Kadesh Barnea, which leaves seven years. So it's been approximately seven years since they crossed the Jordan when Caleb makes his speech here. So that puts Joshua at 87 because he was, he was 80 when they... Um, I'm pretty sure he was 80 when they crossed the Jordan. And... So he's old and advanced in years. Well, <laughs> if he's old and advanced in years, I think he was 80 as well. Um, he's still going to live quite a while. I think he lived to the year to the age of 110. But um, basically, they're they're finished with the major battles where the whole nation participates. <coughs> there, there's plenty left to be done to to take the land, but it's going to be done basically one tribe at a time. And so God wants them to divide up the land. And so they begin. In a strange way, they begin. Of course, first of all, they already have how many tribes were already allocated before they even started? Two and a half. Yeah, two and a half. Over here, you have Reuben and Gad, and then half of Manasseh. All I mean, it looks like a huge area, but there aren't very many cities up there. It was mostly just you know grazing land. So two and a half over there. So that leaves 12 minus uh, two and a half. is nine and a half left to go. Because there were actually 13 tribes, but Levi didn't get any territory, so nine and a half to go. Well, in chapter 13, they didn't allocate anything more. They just reviewed uh, the two and a half. In chapter 14, they start allocating, and the first thing they come up with is, Caleb says, I got dibs on Hebron. <laughs> Said so God promised me that He would give me the land that my feet had walked on. He was one of the spies, and so He wanted Hebron. What tribe was Caleb from? Judah. Judah. And that I don't know if that's what makes Judah get this territory. I'm not sure quite how that works, but this is the territory we're going to find shortly that Judah gets, and Hebron is right there. 
the, the spies, when they went up, they, they started in Cadiz Barnea, which is down here, either at the bottom of the map or just off. It's not on the map, but um, they'd gone up, and so Hebron would have been one of the big cities they, they went to. And remember they said, whoa, these people are so huge, how can we ever conquer them? Well, Caleb wants this city with these huge people, and he's going to conquer them. <laughs> Caleb's not a spring chicken. No, no, he, 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 but he says in verse 11, I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. <laughs> um, and so he's going to use his strength to help conquer these, these, these people. So in chapter 15, then, they do allocate some, some territory, first of all, to Judah. And, and that's this area here, is Judah. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say why they, they do it in pieces like this, because... Um, then in chapter 16 they do Ephraim then in chapter 17 Manasseh and then they just kind of sit around <laughs> oh, they've they done three tribes and they just kind of wait um, so Judah gets this piece Ephraim gets this piece up here and Manasseh gets a piece above that and, and these two were very nice they're very nice pieces because um, some of the best uh, crop land in, in the whole territory is in, is in their, their territories um, but I bring that up because they weren't too happy about it. Um, in verse four, in chapter seventy, verse fourteen, then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, "Why have you given me only one lot, one portion for an inheritance, since I am a numerous people whom the Lord has thus far blessed?" Well, the truth of the matter is, they weren't more numerous than most of the other tribes. But their big complaint is, there's a bunch of bad guys in their territory. So Joshua says, well, if you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaites, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The sons of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of ice. That's the real problem. They don't, they don't want to conquer these people. Um, so Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim, and Manasseh, saying, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not... You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it, and to its farthest borders it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, though they are strong. But basically, Joshua hasn't given it, given them a thing extra. <laughs> they're, they're coming in, you know, give us something else. You know, they, this is too tough. Um, and Joshua says, "But you're a tough people. You can do this." <laughs> and but what I find so interesting: what tribe is Joshua from? Well, no, he's Joshua is from one tribe, but I want to know which which tribe. Ephraim, yeah, one of the one of the tribes is complaining to him. <laughs> so you know he's not he's not giving them any special favor. He's not saying, oh, you know, you're my relatives. You know, sure, you know, I'll, I'll divvy out a little bit extra. <clears throat> he's a fair leader. He here he is a man of God who understands he's leading all the people, not just his own tribe. And they come to him. Maybe they're hoping to get something extra because he's. You know, he's an Ephraimite. But he says, no. Um, you've got this territory. It's plenty enough for you. You guys go and attack these Canaanites and take their land away from them. That's what you're supposed to do. And then we, it, we sit for a while. <laughs> As all these other tribes, none of these other tribes have been divvied up. We've just got Judah, we've got Ephraim, we've got Manasseh. <clears throat> and they're kind of camped out waiting. But, chapter 18, verse 1, 
is an important verse for us. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Shiloh is right here, not that far from where they were camped at Gilgal. That becomes the, the place of the tabernacle for the next several hundred years. Um, where does it eventually end up in? Jerusalem. But that's not till David, and that's several hundred years later. So for now, it's going to be in Shiloh, and it stays there, as I said, for hundreds of years. And that leads me to the overhead that Tracy was trying to give away. <laughs> all right. I hope this comes out all right. Um, well, I've got the light off. All right. Well, the bottom one's a little bit hard to see, and I I cut that out of video on YouTube. But the top one was just a picture that I got off the internet. Uh, archaeologists have have gone and they found where the tabernacle was, not just where Shiloh was, but actually where the tabernacle was. And it appears that at some point they put some foundation stones under it. It was still on the top. It was still a tent, but the, but put a put a better foundation underneath it, and they can actually trace. And, and when they measure it, it's the size of the tabernacle. So they know what they found. It faces east. the exact way that the tabernacle is supposed to face it. Everything matches. Uh, there's a video called The Stones of Israel by Don Patton. Don Patton is, is a brother in, in the church. Um, and he's done archaeology. He's done geology. And, and if you want to look that up on, on YouTube, it's great. It's, it takes over an hour, but very, very interesting uh, video. This picture is of one of these foundation stones, uh, somewhere up there, I think. And you can't see it from where you are, but if you have the paper copy, you can see these little arrows that he added. Three arrows. They're pointing the holes in the rocks. He says those holes were for the tent poles. And, and they, were, they actually have found where the tent poles were, were put to hold the... Uh, the tabernacle up for those several hundred years it was there. Um, if you look at the video, there's a lot more there. He doesn't have the top picture, but um, he has the, the, the path that leads up to Shiloh. And, and of course, he, he's not just teaching Joshua. He's, he's covering the whole Bible in this archaeology. And, and there's a famous story that takes place at the end of that path where um, Eli was sitting on, on a seat waiting for news of the battle, and that's when he fell off his seat and died. And um, uh, the video shows the, a stone that might have been the seat he was sitting on. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it is. I mean, when you think about how long, how long those stones have been there and still be able to go there now and find them, that, that's really great. Um, well, um, next week... We will finish Joshua and get into and get into Judges. Appreciate everybody's help this morning.